Hello, I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. First, a thank you to our sponsor, Shearwater Sailing, a sailboat charter business out of Monterey Bay, run by Kevin Wasbauer. Kevin's a friend and has been on the show. In fact, I interviewed him on episode 85, so you can go back and listen to that if you're interested in hearing more from him. Shearwater Sailing offers offshore excursions aboard a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. Having sailed aboard her on Monterey Bay, I can tell you she's a very beautiful, sleek, comfortable, safe, fast boat. You can book private sailing charters for a couple hours or the full day, go wildlife viewing or take a sunset cruise. You can even book a multi-day adventure, spend the night on the hook on Atalanta. June 4th through the 8th, Kevin will be sailing Atalanta from Monterey to Santa Barbara and back. That's June 4th through the 8th. And this is a great opportunity for some offshore experience. If you've never been offshore, I can't think of a better way to get your sea legs and learn in the process. Or if you've simply been yearning for more time on the ocean, get in touch with Kevin. Do this passage. You can reach out to him directly at 650-743-1389 or email info at shearwatersailing.net to discuss the possibility of sailing aboard Atalanta. So this week, I'm talking with Cameron Albin, a Marine, an Iraq War vet, and a sailor who, along with Taylor Grieger, has started a nonprofit to help veterans and first responders living with PTSD by taking them to sea. I talked to Cameron about his own experience in the military, including the trauma he suffered and how sailing helped him get his own life back. American Odysseus Sailing Foundation is the organization Cameron started, and they're doing some really exciting things, including competing in the 2023 Ocean Globe Race. That's a 27,000-mile round-the-world race. Now, supporters of the organization are actually purchasing and donating a very capable Swan 59 which has already been entered in the race. And I've actually sailed on the boat and can say she's a great boat to sail and it will be a fantastic boat for this race. Using this boat, American Odysseus Sailing Foundation hopes to enter a multinational all-veteran team at little or no cost to the team members. Vets from the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and NATO allies are all welcome to apply and take part in one of the four legs or the whole race. If you're interested, you can visit amodsailing.org for more info on how to apply. I wish I qualified. Okay, here we go with the interview. My name's Cameron Albin. I'm one of the co-founders and the executive director of American Odysseus Sailing Foundation. We are a sailing nonprofit that serves military service members, veterans, and their families providing adventure therapy through sailing. Right now we're based in Galveston Bay and sail there and in the Gulf of Mexico, but we are looking to spread and uh, offer our program in other parts of the country. How did sailing enter your life? Sailing entered my life because I was obsessed with it when I was a kid. 
probably because I had a dad who was a, an English major and inundated me with the classics at an early age. And so from very early on, it was Tales of Odysseus, which probably explains the name of the ah, foundation. Okay. And um, I think the first short story I wrote, I was five years old and it was Odysseus meets King Kong. Um, <laughs> I love it. But I, uh, I, I, I was obsessed with sailing and boats and ships in the sea. And I, I, I drew boats and ships all the time. You know, once I got over wanting to be a cowboy, I wanted to be a pirate. I, uh, I begged my parents for lessons and they really couldn't afford it, but they got them for me anyway. I, I learned how to sail in Lake Travis and uh, uh, just outside of Austin, Texas. Yeah. Uh, then I did every, you know, water related merit badge I could do in the scouts, sailing merit badge, canoeing, rowing, swimming, anything that involved water I, I did. I did Florida Sea Base, which is a, a scout camp in the Florida Keys. And then we, I kind of lost track of it for a while. I was involved in other things in high school. And then I went off to college and, you know, even if I'd had the time for it in college, I didn't have the money. <laughs> then I became a Marine. So for a long time, I really didn't have time for it, but it was in the Marine Corps that I started sailing again while I was living in Dana Point, California. I did some crewing, uh, you know, on, on like the Wednesday night or, or, or the beer can races. I was real meat. Uh, it was nothing special. And I took some courses with my now ex-wife. We kind of did it as a way to quote, work on our marriage. And I guess that didn't work, but she still liked sailing. So I guess that part of it worked. But uh, when I, I was, I ended up being medically retired from the Marines. They retired me and they let me out of the hospital on the same day. My ex had filed for separation about a month before that while I was in the hospital. So uh, I looked for apartments in San Diego for about a day and a half. And that was totally depressing. I was having to live on about a third as much money. After about 36 hours of looking for apartments, my dad said, you should get a sailboat and live on that. You wanted to do that since you were 10. So I got a sailboat and a puppy. And that's how sailboat and a puppy. What kind of puppy? A, a black lab. She was four months old at the time. I adopted her from the San Diego Humane Society. And she's actually with me in the room right now. She's not a puppy anymore. She's an old grouchy creature who didn't want to come up the stairs. She doesn't get along with the other dogs. So uh, she's, she's out here with me. She, she uh, wore herself out today barking at cows. So uh, I think she's done for the day. <laughs> I want to ask you about how you got into the Marines, because I think your time in the Marine Corps is integral to what you're doing now. Being a Marine is a lot odder if you also know what I was studying in college. And I, I was uh, actually a, a theater major at NYU. And actually, if, if anyone who knew me in college would probably consider me the person least likely to join the military back then. I was the part of the first graduating class from my high school. Every graduating senior could get a brick made that had a little quote on it. And mine is still out there in front of the school. And it says, question authority with my name underneath it. And, and then I, I went out and became authority, which I find to be, <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. But I was, you know, I was at NYU and, and I was, you know, I, 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 I I was enjoying what I was doing. I had friends, but I wasn't getting everything I wanted out of it. I was surrounded by a lot of good people, but a lot of them had never really been anywhere or, or done much out of the arts and out of New York. But they all had a lot of opinions on how the world should work. And I don't know. I, it, it seemed I, 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 I didn't feel like I could go around, you know, talking about wanting to put something of myself into art if, if I didn't have anything any experience in order to add that you know i'd always admired people like hemingway 
who, you know, say what you will, the guy went out and did a lot of really rad stuff and then he got to write about it. So uh, I figured if I was going to ever be able to do something of art that value, uh, that, that had any value that mattered, I, ne I needed to actually see something in the world and, you know, develop an opinion based on that. And I just wanted to do something hard. I wanted to do something hard that was mentally hard. It was physically hard. So I, uh, I started looking at the military and I was a history minor and I'd walk around New York city on, on, on the weekends on like a Sunday afternoon. I didn't have any money. So I just walk around and see the city for myself. And I would usually end up in the Barnes and Noble near campus, uh, spending my last five bucks on a cup of coffee and reading books off the shelves in the, in the history section. And one day I read a book on the campaign of Guadalcanal in World War II by a guy named Richard B. Frank. And of course, a big part of that battle was the first Marine division that got deposited on Guadalcanal to, to secure this airfield they captured from the Japanese. And then of course the Japanese tried to take it back and it was kind of difficult for the Marines to defend that airfield because the US Navy was throwing everything they could into securing the waters around that island. And the, the, Navy, the Navy fought hard. They got their butts handed to them quite a few times and, and managed to hang on. But, uh, you know, in reading about the Marine experience on Guadalcanal, I said to myself, you know, that sounds pretty freaking miserable. I want to try that. Uh, that looks hard. Um, <laughs> the, the misery attracted you at that point. I, I guess. I, I figure if you can do that, you can do anything. Yeah. So that was it. I, I applied to Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. And I eventually went and got into uh, Marine Corps OCS. I started in January of 2000. Graduated in... Uh, April of 2000 as a second lieutenant. And then I went through a six-month school called the basic school where all the new lieutenants go. The, the theory behind that is if every Marine is supposed to be a rifleman, every Marine lieutenant, regardless of what you end up doing, should be a basically trained rifle platoon commander, an ethos that actually goes back to Guadalcanal because the um, Japanese forces were trying to recapture the airfield. And every once in a while, they'd break through the perimeter and they'd have to grab the supply lieutenant and he'd get hold of the cooks and the mechanics and whatnot and form an ad hoc platoon and go plug the hole. That's the idea of what the basic school is supposed to teach you. While I was there, I got chosen to be an infantry officer, which is what I wanted. I went to infantry officers course after that, which was also at Quantico, uh, Quantico and that was 10 weeks of learning how to, to lead Marines and in, in infantry operations and learning all the weapon systems and the tactics. And then I went from there to my, my first unit on uh, Camp Pendleton, California. I understand not long after that, there was uh, an event that caused upheaval. Yeah, there was. I think, I think it changed things for a lot of people and, and a little bit more than just having to take off your shoes in the airport. You know, um, you know recently I, I, I'm a PhD student at the University of North Texas, and I was asked to go speak to the Military History Society there about my experience in the war on terror. And I, I, I couldn't talk about that without talking about 9-11 and what that day was like. I mean, first of all, I, I used to live in New York City. I've, I've been to the top of the World Trade Center when it was still there. And, um, you know, I remember driving to work from Dana Point down into uh, down to our little corner of Camp Pendleton. I was in an armored reconnaissance company. And uh, I was a new second lieutenant. And I remember hearing about it on the radio. You know, at first, my brain couldn't compute. They're talking about a plane hitting the World Trade Center. And, you know, my brain thinks a Cessna, like a little single engine commercial aircraft. And, uh, you know, you kind of think, oh, sucks for that guy. 
but you, you don't imagine that it's anything that catastrophic. And when I got to work, uh, most of our unit, including almost all the high-ranking officers were actually not there. They were training in the desert in 29 Palms. And I, I was there with only a, a few of our Marines, our armored vehicle crew. And as I walked past the duty office, there was a sergeant with a broken leg who was on duty because he couldn't go train. And he said, hey, sir, you got to check this out. I, I put my head into the office and CNN's plane, and they show the first building smoking. And, and as we're standing there watching, the second plane hits the second tower. And it, 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 I could feel the world changing around us. And we watched for a second. And then when the tower started falling, um, I just, I ran out of the, the duty office and I went to our company office and I grabbed my platoon sergeant. I said, hey, staff sergeant, where are our Marines? And he said, oh, they're taking showers after their morning workout. And he, I said, you got to go find them and tell them to get the vehicles ready to roll. And he said, well, why? What, what's going on? And I said, I don't know, but I think something's going to happen. And within an hour, they, there was a colonel uh, from the division headquarters calling our unit, trying to find out if we could drive up to LAX and secure LAX International Airport. And he said, how many Marines do you have? How many vehicles can you roll? And I said, I don't know, less than 10, because that's how many Marines I had. And to give you an idea, our whole battalion should have more than 65 vehicles. And that's not counting all the Humvees and trucks and whatnot. And uh, so when I told him we could only roll 10 vehicles to LAX, he said, you're little or no good to me. And he hung up. And then after that, all the phones started ringing. It was all the Marines, moms and wives and girlfriends. And they're all asking the same questions. You know, are we going to war? What's happening to my boy? And and all I could do was say, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. We're Marines. This is our job to respond to th things like this. And all I can tell you is that your Marine, your, your son, your husband, he's in good hands. And, you know, we're going to do our jobs. As, he's been well-trained and we'll do our jobs as best we can. And wow. somewhere in all of that, my, uh, my mom got through. And this is back, I didn't have a cell phone back then. So it was the, the landline in the, the, in the company office that rang my, my mom. And she said, you know, what, what's going on? What, what's going to happen? What does this mean? And all I could say was, I don't know, but I think a lot of people are going to die. And I wasn't wrong. And I, I didn't mean like that day in New York City. I just, mm -hmm. I had this feeling like it, it was the start of something that was going to take a long time to finish. Yeah. So, and that was indeed the case. Sure was. You ended up being deployed overseas multiple times as i understand uh that is true four times my company at the time was part of a marine expeditionary unit which is a, a collection of about 2200 marines that gets on three navy ships and cruises around the world basically waiting for bad stuff to happen and uh, we have two to three of these marine expeditionary units roving around the world at any given time and so in theory you can have marines anywhere in the world in about 48 hours you deploy for six months, six, seven months, and you come back. And we ended up deploying six weeks early. There's a lot of places that you stop, some of which are actually really fun. We got to stop in Australia and Thailand and Singapore. We also ended up going to the Horn of Africa because Kenya is an ally and they're next to Somalia and there are people in Somalia who were not, who were affiliated with Al-Qaeda. And so we got to stand on that border for a while. And then uh, we supported operations in Afghanistan, although I did not go to Afghanistan on that deployment, and then came home and then got reassigned to another platoon. I was given command of an anti-tank platoon. And then uh, you know, six months later, we were 
on another ship heading over to Kuwait and we're in the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Operation Iraqi Freedom One. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I heard from a Marine who used to work for me who's taking college classes right now. And he was commenting online that the textbook he was reading didn't refer to that conflict as Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I, I said, you know, it, most people outside the United States probably wouldn't call it that. And they'd probably call it that with, it, they would probably find it rather ironic that we call it that because the freedom that we were handing out kind of came with a pretty heavy price to the Iraqi people. And it, I, I wouldn't say it was something that was entirely well conceived. And by the way, with me saying that, that's, don't take that as any indication that I regret being a Marine or that I wasn't proud to serve with my fellow Marines. I would do it all over again. But, uh, you know, being fair and looking back, invading Iraq was probably not the best choice that we could, our country could have done at that time. Hmm. Uh, but th that said, we did that. I came back from that deployment, uh, not in the best health. I, I was in an engagement um, on the Diyala River, which is east of Baghdad, and uh, had a friendly aircraft, a Navy F-14, drop a 500-pound bomb next to my vehicle. Mm. And actually don't remember doing my job for two days, but apparently I was doing it. I was walking around talking to people and telling people to do things, which is probably not great. And the next thing I remember, it's two days later, I'm sitting on a riverbank eating rice and dates out of a hubcap with some Iraqi guy. And which was cool because we were also didn't have very much food. So, but uh, I also caught dysentery several times. So I, I came back from that deployment, not in, in the best shape and weighing about 120 pounds. And, and uh, I went to somebody about it. And, uh, you know, the word traumatic brain injury wasn't really being talked about back then. They were, didn't want to damage my career. So they just encouraged me to kind of, you know, suck it up and keep on and, so I was reassigned as the second in command of my first company and uh, the company executive officer XO. Wow. Um, and then uh, we ended up eventually deploying again. We were sent to Okinawa. By this point, it was 2004 and the rest of first Marine division had been sent back to Iraq already. Uh, Iraq melted down in the early part of 2004, uh, was quickly becoming uh, out of control. And we felt bad, you know, we, we wanted to be there with our, uh, you know, with, with our buddies, with our guys we served with, you know, we were Marines, our job is to fight. We wanted to be there doing our job. You know, the harder it got, the more we wanted to be there. Well, you be careful what you wish for. We, uh, while we were in Okinawa, we got picked up by the only infantry battalion on the island. And they said, we want more light armor. We're going to Iraq, pack your stuff. We're leaving in five days. And five days later, we were on another ship sailing away and we sailed from Okinawa to uh, to Kuwait through a couple of typhoons <laughs> and got to Kuwait, and convoyed into a place called Camp Fallujah, which was about a couple kilometers out from the city of Fallujah, which at that time was occupied by Iraqi insurgents, insurgents, you know, under loosely under a group called AQI or Al-Qaeda in Iraq. There were some really bad dudes. Uh, a lot of them were, well, they were mostly foreign fighters from Syria, Yemen, Chechnya, Saudi Arabia, folks from all over the world who, who just wanted to show up there and do some bad stuff. And we ended up getting there just in time to be in the second battle of Fallujah, which is known as Operation Phantom Fury. And uh, where we basically had to go through that city and, you know, clear it house by house. Wow. And uh, we did that and then uh, spent the rest of the deployment, you know, doing everything from patrols along the highways to 
keep them clear of IEDs. A lot of times that meant grabbing until you found the ID. And usually you find an ID either because you see it or because it blows up. So that was interesting. Uh, uh, they did raids. We uh, secured election sites for the Iraqis' first national elections. We did. Uh, uh, we were kind of a, a jack of all trades. Then we we came home. We uh, after six months of all that, we came home and got back on the ship and sailed back to Okinawa. On the way, they had to stop in Thailand for four days to party, which was a horrible idea. It was <laughs> it was it was a, it was a terrible idea. About a third of the Marines that we left Okinawa with in 2004 uh, ended up being killed or wounded. So we left Okinawa with about 93 uh, guys in, in 2004. In 2005, we came back with 60. And oh. then, uh, and we actually had one of the lower casualty rates of the companies from that, that battalion. One of the uh, rifle companies in the battalion started with 165 Marines and came home with 70. So all told, we were deployed for 10 months. And, we got back and then I, uh, I went off to, to work at a training command. Uh, I was a company commander at the School of Infantry, which is where kids go after boot camp to get their infantry training. And pretty much most of the Marines, I, I was responsible for training with my cadre of instructors. They, uh, they ended up going to a rifle battalion and went to Iraq or Afghanistan. After two years of that, I, I went to a professional school for six months. I went to an army school in Fort Knox, Kentucky. And uh, to learn to be a better captain, I went to rejoin my, my unit, and uh, by that point, I wasn't doing great. I'd gotten married after coming back from Fallujah. My now ex-wife said I needed to go do something. I needed to get some help, and I actually called up my command and said, yeah, I think I need, something needs to give here, and they said, don't worry about it. They won't, you won't be able to get in trouble in Iraq, and uh, I went to Iraq for a year as a trainer and advisor to the Iraqi military. They send you back again? Uh, again. I was working for a British command, and I spent a lot of time on ships, actually, <laughs> uh, I was training Iraqi Marines, and we were Iraq's only major deep water port. One of their jobs was to board merchant ships and search them for explosives and things like that. So I would go out on patrols with them from time to time. And I remember the first time I went out to do this, we're in the Quar Abdullah, which is where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers come together and then flow into the Gulf. I'm climbing from this kind of rinky-dink little aluminum center console boat up a Jacob's ladder on the side of an Indian flag freighter. And I had this new body armor that the Marine Corps had issued me, and it was immensely heavy. And it was supposed to have this little quick release thing that you yank on so you can, it will come apart and you can get out of it. Like if you're not, you have to crawl out of a Humvee or something. And I don't think when the Marine Corps bought it, they thought so people would be climbing up the sides of ships. But anyway, when I was in, 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 still in the States and putting all this new body armor together, I had no idea what I was going to be doing when I got to Iraq. And in the process of putting it together, that quick release thing broke. So I just tied it. And so fast forward, I'm climbing up the side of the ship and I've got eight rifle magazines and four pistol magazines and a front armor plate and a back armor plate and side armor plates. And I'm worried about, you know, 65, 70 pounds worth of stuff. And, you know, my arms are burning as I'm climbing up this Jacob's ladder. I'm looking down thinking, I'm going to fall off this thing and die. <laughs> I'm going to go straight to the bottom. But uh, yeah. You got your own anchor there if you uh exactly uh i would uh fortunately i didn't do that but uh i came back and i actually was given command of a company and i was in the process of training them to go to uh uh go to afghanistan we were going to go to afghanistan 2010 but my health pretty much bottomed out at that point uh my marriage did my my mental health my physical health uh all of it kind of gave it up at that point after uh over a year 
dealing with the medical system in the military, I uh, was medically retired in the middle of 2011. That is uh, quite a journey. Honestly, I, I, I'm amazed that you made it as far as you did. I mean, it sounds like there were warning signs all along the way and you just kept, kept moving forward. Yeah, I, you know, and, and I've had a lot of time to think back on it. I, I, I was doing that job far longer than I should have been. There was a part of me that wanted to keep pressing forward because I, I didn't want to let the guys down. I didn't want yeah. to, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't want to quit on them. They're still out there doing what they got to do to plan. And, and I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be there with them. I wanted to, to be there to get them through that next deployment. And, but, it, you know, it's interesting in retrospect, I, I didn't really understand a lot of the issues caused by the TBI until years later when I tried to go to grad school and I was doing things that I used to be able to do pretty well, like read books and, uh, and write papers. Uh, that was, those things were always easy for me or, or take tests. And uh, I, I realized that all the, all the old learning skills that I used to know growing up just didn't work anymore. I had to learn how to prepare for tests differently. I had to learn how to read differently. I went from being able to knock out a book in, in a relatively short period of time and remember everything I read to having to take absolutely detailed notes. And, and reading a book took about three times as long. Uh, I'd have to go through passages and reread them over and over again just to make sure that you know, it was all making sense in my head. And, and, and so once I started realizing all these things, I thought back to what, what it was like to do my job as a Marine you know, after I got blown up. And I realized that I, uh, I carried a notepad everywhere I went. I went from being able to remember everything about my job and, and remember everything about my Marines and everything about my vehicles and equipment, do it all off the top of my head. Everything had to be written down. I carried a notebook in my pocket. And if I lost that thing, I was done. I, uh, <laughs> and you know, that's just one example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I did that job a lot, probably a lot longer than I should have. I probably didn't push hard enough to get help. I, I don't think the military had the right kind of help available at that time. Uh, I, I don't know that they they, they do now. You, you could probably do a whole separate podcast episode about uh, about those issues. But, uh, you know, the fact is, is that when I would say by the time they retired me, I had gone far past the limit to which I should have gone. And there was a lot to rebuild at that point. I kind of, it was like the giving tree. If you chopped them down to the stump and then use dynamite to blow the stump out of the ground, that's sort of where I was at that point. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the American Odysseus Sailing Foundation, which is doing work to help vets like yourself. Tell us about the organization. The organization, it started as an idea that I had in that first six months after I got out of the Marine Corps, and I was living on my Ranger 33 in, on Shelter Island in San Diego, and I saw that this could help people. The thing is, back then, I, I wasn't capable of, of putting anything together and sustaining it. You know, I, I had a long road that I needed to go down before I could do that. So, you know, you fast forward, I did, I did, I did a decent amount of sailing. You know, my, my partner in, in uh, American Odysseus is a guy named Taylor Greger who got out of the Navy and sailed around Cape Horn. And I would say my journeys are not near as epic as his. Uh, it was a lot more like, uh, like Jimmy Buffett meets uh, Ernest Hemingway. Uh, but uh, <laughs> For, for what it was, it got me where I needed to be to kind of start life 2.0. And I, I came back to Texas and went to grad school. And 
Uh, I got my you know, master's degree in military history. I've uh, studying. I moved up to uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area to work on my PhD in American history. I had actually gotten another boat. I'd been a year without a boat. I, I, I couldn't stand it anymore. So uh, I got a boat to live on in uh, on one of the lakes uh, near Fort Worth until I could uh, uh, until I could find a house. Right around the time I moved there, I met uh, a, a great great human being who I'm now married to. Whether that's a good thing, she'll have to tell you. You have to do a podcast episode with her. <laughs> um, I convinced her that sailing is rad, and we got a, a cruising boat together, a, a Genoa 40 DS, which we got down in Galveston Bay. Uh huh. Um, We'd take uh, our kids, my then my stepkids down there uh, to sail. And, and I thought I could go with that. I thought I could go with that, just do academia and then wait for 10 years until she retired and, and we'd go cruising together. That kind of changed when our daughter was born in the fall of 2018. Uh, I spent the first six months at home with her and uh, she was born in November of 2018. Right around the same time, I, I did the comprehensive exams for my, my PhD theoretically began work on my dissertation which that hadn't gone very well but and what, what uh, were you studying at this point uh, my field of study is uh the revolution and the early national period american history my dissertation if i can ever get it written is on the actually on the early u.s name wow but uh anyway after spending all that time with her i realized that what i wanted to share with my family was was sailing and i thought i was a better person when i was on the water and i had more to bring to my family if i was if i was doing that that i I'd, I'd rather do that than try to work my way into the uh the inner halls of academia which it didn't sound like fun at all so i said i wanted to tell my wife i said Will you support me in this i want to try to start this nonprofit. we'll use our boat to do this and do what we can and I started going to sailing clinics to figure out what I didn't know. Uh, self-taught people tend to uh, have a lot of gaps in knowledge. And I wanted to be an ASA instructor, but I'd never taken an ASA course. So I went and I tested out of ASA 101 and I took 103 and 104. And then I went back a month later and I got certified as a 101 instructor. I had enough hours, enough seat time. So I went and started working on my captain's license and I Googled, how do you do a business plan? And I started writing a business plan. And in the process of doing all this, I heard about a guy a Navy vet who just sailed around Cape Horn uh, is, uh, you know, he was trying to get over his own issues from his time in the service. And he wanted to bring attention to the issue of veteran suicides. And uh, he was a Texas guy like me. So I, I reached out to him through his production company. And I, I said, Hey man, it seems like we're trying to do the same thing. Why don't we try to do it together? We talked for a little bit and he said, no, what are you thinking? And I said, well, I just filed articles of incorporation for American Odysseus Sailing Foundation. He said, oh, that's a rad name. I like that name. That's better than what I came up with. Let's do it. <laughs> and so that's it. You know, American Odysseus was born. We, we uh, found a board of directors and put it together and we came up with a plan. And, and initially we were going to, you know, our, our, the boat we were going to use, which is our family boat was on the East coast. And we wanted to focus on cruising and expedition sailing. Okay. Uh, you know, there's other organizations out there that take veterans racing and they're great organizations, but it's not the same level of immersion as what we wanted to accomplish, what we wanted to achieve. We wanted to do, you know, weekend and week long sailing trips. Our, our launch date was April of 2020. And I think you know how, how that went. So, uh, yeah, not a great time for people getting together. No, not, no, it was not a good time at all. And uh, so we canceled our, our initial 
sailing trip in, in 2020. We were going to sail a group down from Beaufort to Charleston. And uh, that didn't happen. Well, eventually what I did was I, my family and I uh, went out and got on the boat. And we decided to sail from Beaufort to Charleston. That trip didn't end well for the boat. What happened? You know, so we were staying in Georgetown, South Carolina, and uh, we'd stop there for the night. Next morning, my wife says, hey, I want to rent a car and take the kids to the beach. I'll meet you in Charleston. For her, it was like an hour. For me, it was eight hours. But I was like, hey, that's eight hours to listen to audiobooks and not have anyone harass me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm down with that. I was, Were you going up uh, the intercoastal waterway? Uh, yeah, we've been kind of, we've been we'd going in and out. You know, we'd, we'd go out okay. for a bit and we'd duck in for a bit. And uh, and at that point, I figured the easiest thing was to go from Georgetown straight down to intercoastal. And, and you know, it was good. It was a great day. It was a sunny day to start with. And there were so few showers floating around out there. I didn't think it would be a big deal, but I got about halfway into it and I hear some thunder out there. It's about 10 miles out. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then I hear it again. And it's about five miles out. I said, no, oh, that doesn't sound near as cool. But then it didn't boom. It, it boom, got zapped. Oh, wow. You know, when a, when a rifle round goes near your head, you hear this crack. It's the sound it makes when the bullets passing through the sound barrier. And it was that same type of sound, but bigger by a factor of, of, of 50. It was so enormous of a sound that your brain can't process it. And everything on the boat was done. Everything, boom, shut down. And, All the electronics, uh, you mean? Oh, the engine shut down, too. Oh, wow. Uh, everything, uh, everything electrical or electronic was done. Like, I went down to the, uh, to the, the DC electrical panel the voltmeter that tells you that you know your voltage in your batteries and all that kind of stuff that thing was pegged as far to the right as it could go and it, it was never going to move again a everything on that panel was was done i realized later that i was lucky to get the engine running again because uh later on we saw that there was problems with the starter as well but i managed to get it uh, up and going the problem then was that i'm in a confined waterway there's nothing in that stretch of the icw as far as places to stop and I still had four hours to go. The tide's falling, and I don't have a depth meter. In that area, you get a lot of shifty stuff going on in the ICW. So there's the chart may say that it's nine feet deep, but that's no indication that it's actually nine feet deep. So I, I was able to make it there uh, without playing bumper cars with the bottom. My phone still worked, although I only had like 15% battery left. I was basically flying on instruments. Uh, I had Navionics on my phone and I was just trying to say as close to the center of the channel as what it, it told me it was. Wow. I hope that I didn't run into anything. And that was it. You know, we were supposed to go on to Savannah, but we, are, we just stayed an extra four days in, in, in Charleston at that point. We got it to the marina and our last day there, we had her hauled out. At least it's a nice marina in Charleston. At least it was when I was there many years ago. Uh, we were at the one that it's actually not in Charleston. It's across the river near Patriots Point where the USS Yorktown is located, which, which is actually cool. Uh, when my wife and I got married, we got married on the USS Lexington the Aircraft Carrier Museum in, in Corpus. And we make it a thing every year to go to an aircraft carrier or a battleship. So we went to the Midway our, uh, around the time of our first anniversary, and we got to go to the, uh, the Yorktown last year. We made it to Missouri, which we know it isn't an aircraft carrier, but it had, you know, we, we used it to check off the box, but we went to the Missouri this year in Hawaii. So it was a really nice marina and it was a great place. The kids had a great time. We all love Charleston, but it was sad because, you know, that was the last ride of, of Liberty. We, we got her to the yard and hauled her out and that's it. It, it, it took three months to, to get a solid assessment from the yard as to the extent of the damages because they had issues they had a, a hurricane 
hit the East Coast probably about a week and a half after we hauled out. So they were busy dealing with that. Then the yard manager got COVID. And so that kind of shut everything down. But eventually they got us a number and the number was high enough that the the insurance company said, yeah, you're done. They paid us out. So it's the loss. Yeah. For those of your listeners who want to know what, what it actually did to the boat, the lightning hit the masthead. It blew everything off the masthead, which made me sad because I just replaced most of the stuff at the masthead oh myself. It split, went down the fourth day and the back stay. Uh, when it went down the fourth day, it blew out the port side nav light. And then on its way down to the water, it took a, a chunk uh, about the size of a quarter out of the gel coat. Where was the nav light? Was it on the stanchion or was it in the hull? It was on, it was on the stanchion. Okay. When it went down the backstay, it actually went down through the rudder and it split the rudder. Wow. Um, and it's probably it going down went, the rudder, rudder post, huh? Yep. You know, everything electrical or electronic was done. Uh, the fridge was done. There was light sockets and electrical sockets that had been blown out, uh, both AC and, and DC, all the marine electronics, all of which I had just, I had just replaced. They were all done. The total was a was a blessing for a couple of reasons. That honestly, that boat was not the best boat for what we wanted to do. But also, if they had actually fixed it, they would have charged me depreciation for every piece of equipment. So I would have had to go down a list and say, no, this particular thing I replaced last year, and and had a receipt to back that up. Otherwise, they wanted to do ninety percent depreciation on everything because it was a twenty year old boat. Ninety percent. Wow. Yeah. Makes you realize so, uh, all this money we're pouring into our own boats, <laughs> how quickly yeah. it goes away. So yeah, so so the, the thing of this, every single thing you do to your boat, what well, you know, if it's if it's a if, if it's a new twelve volt, you know, outlet, you know, keep the receipt for that thing. Document it. Uh, so document every single thing. And then I got to, to go through the experience of trying to find an, a a quote unquote new boat in the 2020 COVID boat market. And, and that was interesting. Yeah, it's been crazy. So tell me what you were looking for. What was the, the boat that was going to fit the bill for Odysseus? The boat had to, had to serve a couple of masters. It had to do what we needed to do for American Odysseus. It had to do what my family wanted it to do. And there was a lot of overlap in that. I wanted a boat that could sail well offshore. And just so you know, I'm not one of the, I, I don't believe that you have to have a full keeled 50 year old dinosaur of a boat to be able to sail offshore. There are benefits to that particular design, but the fact is, is that there have been boats that have been designed to sail offshore, you know, for, for several decades now that have fin keels and spade rudders. Sure. Um, there are production boats that have both been designed to sail offshore and that do successfully sail offshore every year. And all you have to do is, you know, you look up, uh, you know, the boats that have been entered in the ARC rally. Uh, and you can see boats that are sailing offshore in their production boats. The fact is that a lot of really talented naval architects like Sherman Frères and Bruce Farr have designed a lot of really good boats with fin keels and spade rudders to do offshore racing and offshore performance work. A lot of your Whitbread boats had fin keels and spade rudders, bolt-on fin keels and spade, uh, spade rudders. Uh, and these are boats that are designed to sail around the world really hard. With that in mind, I knew that I was going to end up with a, with, a, with a fin keel and a spade rudder because that's what I could afford. I knew I was going to have to finance 
how much I could finance was going to be dependent by, you know, how much I could afford with the cash we now had in hand to do a down payment and then to pay for the haul, you know, the, the you know, the haul out, the sea trial and the survey and the, the insurance up front and all that kind of stuff that you were going to need. We needed a boat that was going to be within a certain range. I think we settled on between 42 and 47 feet because that's what we could affordably pay to dock. That's what we could affordably insure. And that's where price range wise, the, the things that could do the things we wanted to do were falling were in, within that particular range. Mm-hmm. I originally looked at a, a, a 1972 Spartan and Stephen Swan 48. It was a great boat. There was mm-hmm. no way I could get it. Uh, the guy wanted $90,000 for it, which is a steal for that boat, by the way. It was on Lake Champlain. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would have had a, a fun time getting it down. But uh, there's no way I could pay for it. I didn't have $90,000 in cash and no one's going to finance a boat that old. We knew we needed three cabins because we needed to create enough bunks that we could either take four individual adults on an overnight trip or we could have a place to show four kids because we now had four kids. So, uh, you know, then we have our overlapping needs. And uh, after all this, all this research, I looked for a little while at a Beneteau First 51 from 1989. It was a German Frères design. And I hadn't really looked seriously at Beneteau's. But when I, when I saw that boat, I saw what it was capable of and who designed it. And I, I learned a little bit about, you know, it was a, a boat designed for offshore racing. And I, I saw how capable that boat was. I started researching Beneteau a little bit more. I started researching the Beneteau first boats. And eventually the first 47.7 and the first 44.7 ended up on my, my short list of boats to, to look for. And sure enough, I found a 44.7, a 2005 Beneteau first 44.7 for sale in Galveston Bay near where we had bought our previous boat you know we went down there and took a, took a look at it it was just i mean it was it was designed as a racer cruiser it was designed to be able to perform well offshore by bruce Farr. it's a boat that has raced successfully i think uh, the first year they came out they did really well in the uh, sydney to hobart race and the more i looked into it we actually created a facebook group to see who out there had these things and there's people that are cruising these all over the world some people race them, some people uh, cruise them locally, some people are, are working their way around the globe. But it's just a really capable boat. And what I've come to find, it's actually the most fun boat I've ever sailed. It is an absolute joy to sail. It had the three cabins, the two of which were already split in the back. The previous owner had raced it. He'd uh, put lee cloths to split in the two aft cabins into uh, separate crew bunks. So that requirement was already taken care of and it was the right price. So we closed on it in December of 2020. We uh, took our first group out at the beginning of February. And how did you go about finding the first group? Oh, we cheated. I, I, I went to people I knew. Hey, the cool thing about being uh, a, a Marine for as long as I was is that uh, I, I, I know a lot of guys who, who deployed who, uh, sure. uh, who, who could use it. Tell me a little bit about why sailing is a something that that seems to help with PTSD and traumatic brain injury and all kinds of other injuries. What is it? Uh, I, I think it addresses a lot of issues on a lot of different levels. And I think it is effective for everyone from people with PTSD and, t- and, and traumatic brain injury. And, and just so you know, I, I was medically retired for both those things, for PTSD and traumatic brain injury at one point for not having enough blood in my alcohol stream. It, 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 it's also effective for the people who are, who are just burnt out and tired, especially, you know, during the war on terror, 
even for people who weren't saying combat, the military just put a huge demand on people's lives. Uh, it created a huge amount of stress. I was recently talking to the uh, commander of the uh, the headquarters the and service unit that you know it was all the permanent personnel that train recruits at Paris Island. All the drill instructors and all the support staff and everything fall under this guy, this colonel's command. And he showed me a video of everything they were trying to do, trying to train recruits during COVID. That looked miserable, uh, a, a miserable, high stress job. But if you screw up a little bit, the entire country is watching and is ready to criticize everything you're doing. You don't have to get shot at to have a really stressful time in the military. As those who are listening know, sailing appeals to a lot of people outside the military for the same reasons. It does re seems to reduce stress and um, military obviously face different kinds of stress. You're right. I, I, and, and actually after the past 18 months, I think there's a lot of people that could use it. Uh, specifically for PTSD and TBI, PTSD has an actual physical effect on the brain. Continual exposure to high stress environments actually has a physical effect on the brain. It, 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 there are certain parts of the brain called the amygdala and the hippocampus. And, and I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm not going to try to tell you which one is which, but um, they produce the chemicals that activate your brain when you have a fight or flight response. One of those gets bigger and one of those gets smaller. And it's not necessarily in a useful way. All this is exacerbated by the fact that it's not just a, a physical response to continual exposure to trauma and distress, but it, there's also the, the effect of how we're trained. I mean, I, I was trained to combat. I was trained to function for combat. I was trained to function in a combat environment. And that changes your outlook. In a way, your, your fight or flight response gets reprogrammed to a degree. Flight kind of gets deleted from the base code. And when you put a lot of these things together, it's a very difficult way to live. An analogy I would use for people, this is back when I was really first trying to put my life back together. At one point, I had had to take an eye exam because at one point, the Marine Corps was trying to convince me to be a pilot. But what they do is they dilate your pupils, and then you have to wear sunglasses the rest of the day because your dilated pupils take in so much light, it, it will overwhelm your optic nerve. Having PTSD is kind of like that. You've been trained to be hypervigilant, to be hyper-aware. This is further validated through through combat experience. Everything you've been taught is now validated. So rather than just your optic nerve being overwhelmed, it's all your senses that are functioning at this high level. And it's taking in all this data all the time. And the result is that it's triggering your fight or flight response. So you have one part of your brain that's saying, I, I need to be activated. I need to be prepared to be in this survival mode. You, you have this other part of your brain, the, 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 the calm and rational part of your brain, what part of it that still exists that is saying, yeah, dude, but we're in Walmart. <laughs> and, and so there, and, and therein lies the challenge of trying to reintegrate into, uh, into the civilian world. For you, what is, what does being on a boat and sailing do for you in particular that you would say is, is different? Is it being on the water is it well, the way that I have been taught to be is useful again for me back then in 2013, when I was putting my life together, that, that's what it was. Uh, I have all these things that I've been taught. I have all these things that I've been trained to be. I have all these things that I am now as a result of my experiences as the result for how my brain now functions that don't make me function very well in normal society. They don't make me a very fun person to be around and to go from being a highly successful individual who's at the 
the who's doing a, a very difficult job, and for the most part, I think I did it pretty well until the very end, to going to be someone who who struggles just to be around other people or to function in normal situations. That's a difficult situation, and, and that's beyond a lot of the things people have when they get out, which, you know, loss of identity, you know, the anger of separation and the feeling of abandonment, things like that. But just that feeling of, I, I was at the top of the game and I was useful and, and now I'm not, now I can't function. And you put yourself on a boat and all of a sudden being hyper aware, that's a useful thing again. You, you want to have your senses engaged in a, in, a, in a very active way when you're out on the water. Not doing that, you end up playing bumper cars with with the dock or at the bottom of the ocean, or uh, or not paying, not reefing when you're supposed to. Mm. Um, who you were is now in this environment no longer a liability. You get enough separation from a lot of the sensory clutter that existed in 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 human life, because in civilian life, because when you're in civilian life, you're surrounded by people, and when you come from a job where you're looking, where you're constantly scanning for threats, and threats are normally come from people then being around people can be in itself stressful and and in itself very exhausting. So now you've got enough separation and you're in an environment where you you don't feel like an alien on your own planet while you're on that boat. And you get enough separation and enough clarity to be able to identify the issues in your life that are keeping you from moving forward. Not just the emotional piece, there, there's emotional trauma, but also the, the behavioral components. Wh- which of my behaviors are making me unsuccessful in life? And how can I do that? When I first started, uh, when I was living on my boat in Annapolis, that's what my daily life was. I'd, I'd start every day by creating a list of things that I had to do. And I'd get off my boat and I'd go do them. And maybe I only did two or three of those. And then I'd go back and I'd, I'd sort of regroup and I'd go try it again the next day. And I'd try to do a little bit better the next day. It's a way to, to find yourself. It's a place to learn yourself again, to relearn yourself. And it's a place that you can feel confident, feel challenged, have a mission. I think that's what another thing that a lot of people miss when they get out is, is having a mission. Tell me about some of the reactions from some of your buddies or some of the other vets who've been out with you. I think probably the the best reaction for that is um, from a friend of mine named Mark. He served with me for a while in the Marine Corps in uh, 2004 and 2005. Because we were an armored unit, we had vehicle mechanics who worked with us. And and the interesting thing about our unit is it doesn't really matter that you're a mechanic. Uh, If you end up in combat, you're still there and you still got to do combat stuff. So he, he did all of that and he did it very well. And he ended up being the Marine Corps for eight years and then getting out. He got out as a sergeant. He, he, he struggled finding his place. He did everything from construction to industrial painting to being a chef. So when I was looking for people to come in on that first cruise and I figured I'd reach out to people I know to be my, my guinea pigs, people who I knew would be cool if it didn't go quite right, who would also give me honest feedback. Mark was one of the guys I asked and I said, you come on sail with us. And so we did. We did something that would give them a taste of what it was to live aboard and to travel on the sea. We sailed from Kima, about 26 miles down Galveston Bay to Galveston. We stayed overnight in Galveston and then we uh, ate on the boat, went to see downtown Galveston a little bit and turned around and came back up the next day. It was a pretty simple trip and he loved it. And the other guy who came out was a guy I've known for, I guess, 20 years now, um, a guy named Matt, who also loved it. And the difference between Matt and Mark is that I think both would have dropped everything and moved 
to a place where they could be on a boat if they could have. Uh, Matt's wife <laughs> won't let him. Um, uh, although some days it seems like she's going <laughs> to, she may force him to, she didn't go, fine, do it. Mark didn't, didn't have those attachments. He sold his house in Seattle and he moved down. He bought a condo that's about five minutes from the boat. He, he now is part of our team. He, he, he sells with us all the time. And the only reason he didn't get a boat move aboard is because he was having, you know, it's the, the, the COVID boat market. Finding a boat was hard and getting insured for one was even harder with his experience level. Um, and so we're actually working on building that, his sailing resume right now. But he's just a better person when he's out of the water. He, he, that, that's his description. He feels like a better person. He's not as angry. He doesn't have this underlying anxiety of how he's going to respond in social situations and whether it's going to create problems for him. He feels like where he's supposed to be. And I would have to say that most of the people we bring out have some version of that reaction. It could be like a one-off thing. I did this. I've never done it before. I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but for this limited period of time, I felt like a normal person. I felt good about myself, or it, it could be a much deeper transformative experience where it's something they want to come back to and they want to explore further. We haven't had anyone do it and say they hate it. And, uh, <laughs> well, that's, and that's a good sign. And, and it kind of fits into our overall philosophy, which is that if we get a vet on in the water, they're probably going to live to see another day. And that's kind of what we're going for. That's awesome. Tell me about some of the plans. I know that you have a, a race in the works. Well, we just finished one. And we're going to do it again next year. It's a, um, it's an offshore race in the Gulf of Mexico. It goes from Galveston down to Port Aransas, about 170 some miles for hardcore racers. It's probably not, not a huge deal. Uh, we did this with an all vet team, uh, last month, seven on board, including myself. I never really was much for racing. I, I think the last race I did was in a 420. It was around boys in a, in a bay. I always thought people got so wound up doing race stuff. But I got to tell you, I really like the offshore thing. It, it makes a lot more sense to me. You know, you're trying to get somewhere. Having a destination mm -hmm. in mind kind of fits my sense of adventure. So, but uh, what's more important is that everyone who was out there got something out of it. Taylor, also not really big in racing, but he had a great time. All the crew we brought out, Mark was with us. Matt came back for this. Other guys who'd sailed with this throughout the year came back with us. And it was, uh, it made a great end of the year event. It made a great culminating event for the year. And our goal is to have access to a second boat so we can bring two crews out when we do this next year. Oh, that'll and be we're going to engineer our events for next season so that we sort of identify people early on who are interested in doing this and have a little bit more time to train and prepare as the season continues so that we, uh, eh, we can do a little bit better than we did this year. Uh, <laughs> for a while, it looked like we're going to do well. Uh, for a while, we were at the top of our division. Then we hit a, we hit a hole. We hit a wind hole that stopped us dead in our tracks for about two hours. And after that, we had the wind dead astern at about six knots. And uh, the first 44-7 is a great boat. You, you hit about 10 knots of wind, especially on a beam reach or sailing upwind. And she's going to take off like a screaming freight train. But six knots on a run, not, not her deal. Not gonna we, we, fell back to the, we fell back to the to the bottom of our uh, our division again. So, uh, But we learned a lot. We had a great time. And, and, and that's what we were going for. That's awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, if there are any vets listening who want to sail with you or people who know others who would want to sail with you, how, how do they find out more? How do they get in touch with you? That's a great question. Uh, if you go to our website, 
www.amodsailing.org. That is amodsailing.org. Okay. You go to the contact button and uh, you fill out that form. It, it sends an email directly to me. I, I promise I will respond to every email. And if it's one that's specifically for Taylor wanting to find out about his trip around Cape Horn or hell or high seas, I, I just send them directly to him and say, dude, you need to answer this guy. So if you're out there and you know someone who, who served, you think could benefit from what we do, or maybe they can't come sail with us, but uh, they're just interested in learning and they want to ask questions. You know, half of what I do is just answering people's questions. And I, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy helping people get started and make better boating choices than I made when I was starting out. That's the best way to do it. Great. Cameron, this has been such a joy talking to you. You're doing such fantastic work there. Keep it up. I hope the business keeps growing now that we're slowly climbing our way past COVID. And I can't wait to hear, hear more how it goes. Well, absolutely, Ben. I appreciate you getting us on here. I got to tell you, it, I, my, my drives down to the boat are about five hours each way. And I spend most of that time listening to sailing podcasts. So I have already burned through all of yours. Uh, so I, I always, uh, I'm always pulling you up on Spotify to find the next podcast. So I was honored that you, uh, you had me on to talk about this. Well, that's it for this episode. Again, Cameron and Taylor are putting together a boat and crew for the 2023 Ocean Globe Race. And if you're a vet from the U.S., England, Canada, Australia, or a NATO ally country, you can apply to be part of the team. Visit amodsailing.org. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. And until next time, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing.